Today, I want you to meet somebody that I actually met through being on uh, Newsmax with him. And uh, his I was so impressed with his commentary that I started to follow him and, and read more about him. And he has had so many fantastic things to say about our justice system and about the failures of the defund the police movement and uh, so much more that is so relevant today that I wanted you to meet him. Will Sharf, welcome to the show. So great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So um, you were a federal prosecutor. You're now running for Missouri Attorney General. Um, how'd you get involved in all this stuff? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a bit of a trip. Uh, as you said, I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in St. Louis uh, for, a, for a few years. Uh, before that, during the Trump administration, I worked on judicial confirmations and nominations in Washington, D.C. I was on the teams that confirmed Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, worked on uh, federal judicial appointments all over the country, really. Uh, before that, I served as policy director to the governor of Missouri, uh, dealt with a lot of law enforcement and crime-related issues in that capacity. Uh, currently, in addition to running, I'm, I'm an attorney in private practice. Uh, most notably, I'm now representing uh, President Trump, helping defend him against some of the cases that he has going against him. Uh, but I'm a big fan of yours, a big fan of the work that you and the association do. And it's just uh, it's great to be with you. Now, you uh, you know, you're from uh, Missouri. You're uh, you're uh, in St. Louis right now. And quite frankly, St. Louis County is the epicenter of the war on cops, the whole defund the police movement, going back to the shooting of Michael Brown in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Talk about how all of that, what you saw and then what you saw um, in 2020, how is how has that affected you moving forward with your career? Yeah, you know, as you said, St. Louis, this is the birthplace of the BLM movement, uh, the birthplace of the defund the police movement. Uh, really, one of the things that got me involved in politics in the first place and, and public policy in the first place uh, was seeing the reaction uh, to, to the Ferguson riots, uh, seeing a, a state government that was totally unable uh, or totally unwilling uh, to take a firm response as uh, as large parts of our city were basically burned to the ground. Uh, it's really, really bad. And, you know, working with the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, uh, other law enforcement uh, officers in the region, uh, it's been really demoralizing. Uh, these are guys who are out on the streets, often dangerous streets, who feel that their their politicians really just don't have their backs. And as you know, one of the, the worst uh, effects of uh, of Ferguson, of BLM, of defund the police has just been this demoralization uh, that we've seen all across the country in police departments among police officers. You know, I don't think any police officer uh, gets into policing because they think they're they're going to get rich. They're not doing it for the salary. They're doing it because they want to serve their communities. And when they they feel that the the politicians who uh, you know who are setting the agenda, who are setting policy. Uh, don't have their backs, aren't willing to stand up for them, uh, you see a, a natural response to that, which is a lot of experienced police officers leaving their departments, leaving policing. Uh, and ultimately, the people who who feel the brunt of that are the people who are living in crime-ridden communities. Uh, I've heard from crime victims, you know, over the course of my career as a prosecutor, I've heard time and time again, 
You know, why didn't the police get here sooner? Why was this guy out on the streets? Uh, why are bail laws not being enforced? Why are criminals being allowed out of prison with basically slaps on their wrist? It's uh, it, it's really disheartening to see. And one of the reasons I decided to to run for office and sort of throw my hat into the arena this way uh, is really just that, that I think police need to understand or police need to know that their elected leaders are going to have their backs. And I think the people in, in crime-ridden communities need to know uh, that there are people who are going to stand up for them, that there are elected, elected officials, political leaders uh, who are going to stand up against this wave of crime that we've seen take over so many American cities. You know, that is so well said. And, you know, in St. Louis, for example, you know, you have a sitting senator who wants to abolish the jail. Let's yeah. get rid of the jail. And uh, and that so negatively impacts the uh, majority of people in the community who are just simply law abiding citizens who just want to go about their life and be able to take their kids to school safely, um, to go shop at their local drugstore, to be able to drive down the street without worrying about being carjacked. And uh, it's you know, it's just. It's so horrific. And one of the biggest parts of that is this quote unquote bail reform that we see yeah. all around the country, you know, in just north of you in my native Illinois, we have no cash bail, the safety act, all of that. Can you explain to people why bail is important and how it fits into our justice system? Sure. So when you're arrested for a crime, you're either held in custody uh, pending trial uh, or you're released and you can be released on any number of conditions. You can be released uh, after posting cash bail, uh, which usually involves getting a bail bondsman uh, to come in and pay some money and you pay him money. Uh, and then if you don't show up for court appearances, uh, they're they're responsible and, and you're responsible uh, you can be released on uh, different standards of community supervision, uh, for example, GPS monitoring uh, or other measures that the court can take to make sure, one, uh, that you actually show up for your court dates and two, that you're not continuing to commit crimes. Uh, so what we've seen in left wing governed cities all across the country, it's obviously true in Chicago, uh, where you spent much of your career. It's, it's true in St. Louis. Uh, you've seen this push to have courts just cut criminals loose uh, with no supervision, with no bail, with no way of ensuring uh, that they're not going to go and commit more crimes, uh, no way of ensuring that they're even just going to show up for their court dates. The constitutional standard, the Supreme Court has said, uh, is that if somebody poses a continuing danger to the community, or if they pose a, a risk of non-appearance, that you're allowed to detain them pre-trial. And the federal system, more often than not, with serious violent crimes, with gun crimes, with drug crimes, particularly with people with long criminal histories, criminals are detained pre-trial. And that's a, it's a serious disincentive uh, to the criminals out on the streets to continue committing crimes. They don't want to be sitting in jail, obviously. Uh, and it also ensures that, that justice is done, that cases move through the system, uh, that trials happen or pleas happen, and that people are punished for the crimes that they've committed. Here in Missouri, what we see more often than not in state cases is guys will get picked up even for serious crimes. They're cut loose on bail maybe 24 hours later, and their cases just drag and drag and drag in the system, sometimes for two or three years even. 
And in the meantime, a lot of these guys are out on the streets continuing to sell drugs, continuing to uh, commit violent crimes, continuing to tool around with guns. And that's what's led, I believe, uh, to the breakdown in law and order in a lot of these communities is that people know that committing crimes uh, can be consequence free for them. Uh, and if you don't disincentivize crime, shockingly, you tend to get a lot more crime. But it's that sense of disorder that I think has been driven in a lot of cities uh, by loose bail laws and by by uh, diminishing the standards for, for detaining pre people pre-trial uh, that's led to so much chaos in, in cities. The left just has this one wrong. And I think conservatives need to stand up and insist on pre-trial detention where appropriate, insist on tough bail laws, and also insist on truth and sentencing laws. I mean, we have people being convicted of serious felony offenses uh, who are cut out on suspended sentences, or maybe they get 90-day shock incarceration or something like that. I think if you've been convicted of multiple felony offenses, you need to go to the Department of Corrections. You need to actually serve some time in prison. Otherwise, we're just letting these guys loose with slaps on the wrist. And, and that's just not a disincentive uh, for these criminals uh, as they go out and commit these sorts of crimes. What do you say to people who say, you know, prison is racist, the justice system is racist? I just think that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, America has a long history with this. Obviously, I think at some at some times in American history, uh, in some jurisdictions, we had a real problem with that. Uh, but I just don't see that today. You know, you think about a, a state court, uh, you're being tried by a jury of your peers, true in federal court as well, obviously. Uh, I, I don't I don't think that's a feature of the system anymore. Uh, I think we we need to fairly punish criminals for the crimes that they commit, uh, regardless of regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity. Uh, I believe in a colorblind society, and I think that our justice system more often than not uh, is able to sort good cases from bad. Uh, but I think that's a cop out. You know, a lot of people just want to be able to wave their hands and say uh, criminal justice is is racist or enforcing the laws is racist. Uh, and that's that's easier than dealing with the very serious issues we have on our streets uh, when you look at, at crime. I'd also just say that more often than not, you look at low-income communities in cities like Chicago, uh, where, where you're from, or cities like St. Louis, crime victims more often than not are, are of the same race as the people perpetrating the crimes. Uh, so if you take the view that, you know, for example, no black person in St. Louis should be sent to prison, uh, no, no black criminal in St. Louis should be sent to prison, uh, more often than not, if you look at the statistics, the victims of their crimes are, are other black people living in their communities. Uh, so it's just it's a it's a total cop out. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mesh with the, the lived reality on America's city streets. Uh, and I think the fact that the left has elevated uh, ele elevated the sort of the racial component uh, of criminal justice issues the way that they have uh, is just deeply dangerous and misguided. Well, and it and like you said, it's affecting, uh, you know, poor communities, communities of color. You know, we did the National Police Association did polling and we found out that people in especially in poor neighborhoods, they wanted more police. They want their police to have more funding because they're scared. Nobody should be, you know, unable to walk out of their home, get in their car or take the bus, take their kids to school, all, you know, all that and have to constantly worry about your own safety. Yeah. Um, 
Well, you worked in the, you know, federal uh, prosecutorial system, and we're hearing a lot right now about how the federal government um, wants more gun control, more gun control laws, and that's how we're going to solve uh, gun crime in this country. Uh, talk about that uh, a little bit, what, what your thoughts are on that, more federal gun control. You know, you know the statistics as well as I do. A vast, vast majority of gun crimes, of crimes committed using guns in America, those guns are either stolen uh, or they're purchased uh, through straw purchases. Um, th that's illegal already. So if we just enforce the laws on the books more effectively, uh, that deals with your gun crime problem. The idea that we're going to penalize law-abiding citizens, that we're going to take guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens... Uh, and that that's somehow going to solve crime. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, it doesn't mesh with the statistics. It's just sort of the left trying to project their preferred policy outcomes onto an issue that they don't fully understand. You know, I was in the U.S. attorney's office. Most of the work I did, though, uh, was with local law enforcement officers and agencies, with the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department in particular. I've never heard a police officer say, a, a street police officer, a line police officer say, what we really need is to take AR-15s out of the hands of, you know, law-abiding suburbanites. That's just not part of the conversation on the streets. What we need is to make sure that felons, you know, violent felons aren't possessing firearms. We need to actually crack down on straw purchases, and we need to actually crack down on on stolen firearms. I mean, that that's that's where the the meat of the issue is. Everything else, to me, is just a distraction. Now that again, very, very, very well said. This is why I wanted to have you on. Um, we have a mental health crisis in this country, uh, and and a big part of that is homelessness, drug addiction. Um, how do you think we need to get it? How can we get a handle on that again, especially in our blue cities around the country? Yeah, you know, I think 30, 40 years ago, maybe even a little longer, longer ago than that, we made a decision in America uh, that we weren't going to have inpatient mental health treatment, uh, that we weren't going to send people to what, what at the time were called asylums. Uh, we were going to trust the mentally ill uh, to be out on the streets, uh, maybe medicated, maybe not. Uh, and I, I don't think that policy set has served anyone. Uh, it doesn't serve the mentally ill uh, because what you have is people oftentimes with treatable conditions who are just cut loose on their own. And as you said, often end up uh, homeless and drug addicted. It doesn't serve the communities uh, that they live in, because, again, as you said, we've seen just a shocking rise uh, in homelessness and vagrancy as a result of that policy set. Uh, and it doesn't serve the country as a whole. Uh, because it's been a key driver of crime, because it's been a key driver of urban disorder. So I think we need to be compassionate, uh, but I think we need to insist on treatment for those who are seriously mental, mentally ill and those who in particular pose a danger uh, to their communities if they're allowed to just be out on the street unsupervised. I mean, it's really sad when you look at what's going on in cities across America, where people who could be you know, good, productive members of society, if they were provided with appropriate mental health treatment, uh, who are instead just living in the worst possible circumstances and often turn to, you know, illegal drugs or crime uh, because that's all that's available to them. Uh, so I think we made a real mistake as a country. I think people are starting to wake up to that. 
But when you look at these tent cities that have sprung up and, you know, in cities like even Washington, D.C., uh, obviously out in California, cities here in the heartland, uh, it doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't serve the the people who are living in those conditions. It certainly doesn't serve the communities that they're living within. Uh, and we need politicians who are uh, who are brave enough to take this issue on head on. Um, you know, g- going with that, the homeless problem, we also have uh, a horrific drug problem in this country. And I was one of those. I was a young narc in the 80s. You know, I was one of those foot soldiers in the war on drugs. And quite frankly, drugs won, in my opinion. Um, but now we have we have just drugs pouring uh, into this country, you know, especially from the southern border, uh, much more dangerous drugs. How are we going to get a handle on that? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. it, it the border issues are are profound and really worrying. I mean, St. Louis, uh, you talked about, obviously, Chicago with the, you know, the 80s crack epidemic heroin. St. Louis used to be a key heroin transshipment point uh, because of our location at the juncture of, of northbound highways and Highway 44, uh, Highway 70. Uh, today, I mean, I don't think I saw a single heroin case in my time in the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's all fentanyl. Uh, either it's straight fentanyl or it's fentanyl, you know, being cut with heroin or something like that. Uh, but the fentanyl problem, it it all comes from the border, that these are Chinese precursors that are being shipped to the cartels. They're being cooked up in industrial sized labs in Mexico. The Mexican government hasn't been willing to uh, take effective action uh, against what the cartels are doing. And the fact that the border has just turned into to totally ungoverned space, uh, particularly since Joe Biden came into office, uh, that's where our drug problems coming from. I mean, we have, I think, 120,000 overdose deaths in America last year. I think this year we're likely to be even higher than that. I mean, the human toll of loose border policies is uh, it's just it's been terrible. Uh, I mean, the two key drugs that that we're seeing just explode now uh, are fentanyl and fentanyl analogs, just these incredibly powerful opioids. And then also methamphetamine. I mean, I've said publicly uh, we didn't see, I, I don't think I saw a single ecstasy case in my time in the U.S. Attorney's Office where the ecstasy was actually ecstasy. It's all just meth being cut with something else. Uh, that wasn't true even five or six years ago in, in St. Louis, certainly. Uh, but the amount of meth and fentanyl that's being trafficked across the border, it's its unprecedented. We need to get it under control. Uh, otherwise, we're going to keep seeing overdose deaths rise. And I just don't want to live in a country where you know, we have hundreds of thousands of these deaths of despair every year. Um, switching gears just a little, you know, you spent so much time working with local law enforcement, and we obviously have a retention and a recruitment issue uh, in American law enforcement. Having worked so closely with uh, American law enforcement officers, what would you say to a young person who says, well, I'm thinking about becoming a cop, but it seems like a really... Uh, a really bad time. And all I hear about is how terrible cops are. What would you say to that? You you know, first, as I said before, we need political leadership who are going to stand behind the police. And I think if police feel supported, uh, as opposed to feeling under attacked by their their political leaders, uh, that job becomes a lot better and a lot more livable. Uh, And I, I think being a police officer can be an incredibly fulfilling career. Uh, what we've seen, though, in St. Louis is is exactly the sorts of retention issues that you're talking about. And I think it stems from the fact that 
we have elected leaders in the city of St. Louis. I mean, our mayor, Tashara Jones, literally the first thing she did when she got into office was pulling money out of the police budget, pulling money out of SWAT units, out of uh, our camera system, real-time crime center. Uh, I mean, this was her number one priority. And police officers hear that, they see that, they understand that. Today in the city of St. Louis, we have precincts uh, where on some shifts you have a single radio car. I mean, this is a, a city, 300,000 people, uh, a, a department that's probably about 500 officers understaffed at the moment. Uh, it, it's just, it's dangerous for everybody involved. I understand why police officers are fed up. Uh, I'll say though, if you wanna serve your community, I don't think there's anything better that, than you, that, that you can do uh, then, you know, becoming a police officer, putting on a badge and helping keep your community safe. Uh, so I'm hopeful. I think America is sort of turning the corner on these issues that people understand uh, that defund the police has failed, that people understand that these protest movements, you know, BLM and all that, that they need to be stopped. Uh, so I'm hopeful that the future will be brighter for police officers than the past has been. Uh, but I think it really does start with political leadership and officers understanding uh, that they're going to be properly supported by the people who are putting them out on the streets. Well, you have such a succinct grasp of the issues, not just locally, uh, but nationally. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your candidacy? Where can they follow you on social media? So our website is uh, com. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Truth Social uh, at Will Sharp. Will, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down! Last year, Law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.